You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Pastor Jeff has been walking through the book of Exodus week by week. Today, I'm going to pause on this expository walk to take us up to about a 30,000-foot panorama level to view the Exodus story as we see in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and culminating with the people arriving in the Promised Land in Joshua. So if you want to do the math, that's over 160 chapters and almost 5,000 verses, but don't worry, we've ordered box lunches from Jason, so we won't even have to take a break. (laughs) Just kidding. The Exodus story appears throughout the Bible. It's a central part of God's redemptive history. And in the exodus of Israel from Egypt to the Promised Land, we see a picture of our Christian life. We also see a sobering picture of our own hearts. We see a holy, righteous God who takes sin very seriously. And we see a merciful, faithful, and sovereign God whose love triumphs over everyone and everything and whose purposes are not thwarted by our sin or our circumstances. And we're pointed to Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan in history and in each of our lives. As is our custom at Redeemer, if you're able, I would ask you to stand as we read the Scripture. In Nehemiah and chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. You saw the oppression of our ancestors in Egypt. And heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, all his officials, and all the people in his land, for you knew how arrogantly they treated our ancestors. You made a name for yourself that endures to this day. You divided the sea before them, and they crossed through it on dry ground. You hurled their pursuers into the depth like a stone into raging water. You led them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, to illuminate the way they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai, and you spoke to them from heaven. You gave them impartial ordinances, reliable instructions, and good statutes and commands. You revealed your holy scripture to them and gave them commands, statutes, and instructions through your servant Moses. You provided bread for for their hunger, and you brought them water from the rock for their thirst. You told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But our ancestors acted arrogantly. They became stiff-necked and did not listen to your commands. They refused to listen and did not remember your wonders you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, and you did not abandon them. Even after they'd cast an image of a calf for themselves and said, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt, and they had committed terrible blasphemies, you did not abandon them in the wilderness because of your great compassion. During the day, the pillar of cloud never turned away from them, guiding them on their journey. And during the the night, the pillar of fire illuminated the way they should go. You sent your good spirit to instruct them. 
You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. You provided for them in the wilderness for 40 years, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Father, I pray this morning that you would enlighten our minds to understand the truth of just who you are and who you are in our lives. And I pray that that truth would move into our hearts and bring change and hope in the lives of every one of us here. In Christ's name, amen. The history of Israel through the Exodus across the Old Testament is a tragic expose of a stiff-necked, hard-hearted people who repeatedly respond to their Creator's generous love and unmerited mercy with serial idolatry and serial adultery. But it's crucial that we remember as we read through the Exodus story that it's not their story. It's God's story. It's the story of a loving father undaunted by their sin, who is relentless in pursuit of the hearts and ultimate salvation of his rebellious children bent on their own destruction. Because it is God's story and not ours, there is incredible hope. And as we get a clearer picture of just who he is, we are filled with hope, we are strengthened in our faith, and we are motivated to love and follow and trust and obey him. In a sense, their journey begins with God's instructions to slaughter an unblemished lamb and spread the blood over the doorposts and lentil above the door of their homes. Now, we know that the lamb was a picture of Christ and the blood, the blood of Christ that applies to our lives. And when the judgment of God came that night to the land of Egypt, those whose homes were covered with the blood were spared. Likewise, the journey of our own Christian life begins when the blood of Christ is applied to our lives individually. God's people set out from Egypt, and their first test comes at the Red Sea. With the impassable Red Sea in front of them and the Egyptian army closing in behind, they are gripped with fear and forgetting their God who had just turned natural law upside down over and over again in the miracles of Egypt. They cry out, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt? that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in this wilderness. God parts the sea, and they pass through on dry land. The sea crushes the Egyptian army, destroying the army. The Israelites dance and sing the deliverance of the Lord. Ain't God good? Three days later, they're in the wilderness, come upon bitter water, and once again, are grumbling and murmuring about God. So God has Moses throw a tree into the water and it becomes sweet. They venture forth again and immediately begin to complain and grumble. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by our pots of meat and ate all the food and bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. What drama queens. Over and over, God provides when things get tough. They fear and doubt and complain and grumble. God gives them manna, and before long, they complain about having nothing to eat but manna. We're tired of manna. What do you do with manna every day? Manna burgers? Manna waffles? Banana bread? Sorry. 
Actually, what they said was, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. So God gives them quail. He causes water to come out of a rock. He guides them with a pillar of smoke by day and fire by night. He calls for their hearts to be turned toward him. Over and over, he instructs them. Over and over, he warns them of the consequences of sin and rebellion. But over and over, they forget and turn away from their loving, compassionate provider and sustainer to look to have their needs and wants met elsewhere. Memories of Egypt look so good. But are we so unlike them? Paul doesn't think so. Referencing the Exodus story in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, Now these things took place as examples for us, so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were, as it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. And let us not test Christ as some of them did. Test Christ. That's interesting. As some of them did. And were destroyed by snakes. And don't complain as some of them did. And were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example, as examples. And they were written for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. God knew the problem was in their heart, and he repeatedly tried to get them to deal with it. When they come to the promised land the first time and send spies in, the majority come back and say, the people in the land are huge, and therefore we will not be able to take the land. And they were huge. In the Bible, it's recorded that one king's bed was 13 and a half feet long. How big of a dude sleeps in a 13 and a half foot bed? Joshua and Caleb looked at the land with the eyes of faith rather than the eyes of fear. The majority of people in, in, in God's people saw the people of the land that they would have to overcome. Joshua and Caleb saw the God who overcomes for us. Fast forward 40 years when that generation has passed away in the wilderness and God is bringing his people into the promised land at last. He's been warning them over and over through Moses and Joshua that they were to completely rout and destroy all of the inhabitants of the land and the altars of their gods because it was God who would be driving those people out for them. These pagan people represented sin, inhabiting the land God had given to his people. God's people begin to obey, but before the book of Joshua is over, we see them not obeying, but rather putting the inhabitants to forced labor. They must have thought something like, well, now that we've mostly defeated the enemy in the land, why not leave a few around to enjoy what they can do for us? And as they say, the rest is history. We see Israel's heart pulled away from the Lord as they eventually stoop to worshiping these false gods and are tormented by the people God had promised to drive out if they would obey him. The Israelites were a mess, but where they were faithless, God was faithful. Why would God put up with the people who over and over and over and over take his love and his blessing and his patience and his kindness and yet keep turning away from him to pursue their wants and needs being met elsewhere? Why would they keep falling into the same pattern of sin? Why would he 
continue to be faithful because of who he is. In Psalm 103, excuse me, could y'all fix that for me in the back? We may be going without the slides. There we go. Thank you. The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He reveals his way to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we're made of, remembering that we are dust. God is sovereign and he is faithful. In his unimaginable omni-everythingness, he is completely in control of all of history and intimately involved in his creation so that his eye is on every single sparrow, on every lily of the field, on every hair of our head. And for some of us, that last one's easier to keep track of than for others. He has a purpose and a plan for his people and for each of our lives, and his plan will not be thwarted not by what other people do, not by the natural world that we live in, this fallen world, nor by us ourselves. Let me ask you a question. Was there a chance, even a small chance, that Pharaoh would have stopped God's people from leaving Egypt, the most powerful king in the world? Was there a chance that the lack of water in the desert would have prevented 600,000 men plus multitudes of women and children from surviving for 40 years? Did the idolatry of the people, their adultery against God, their selfish failure prevent God from bringing them into the promised land? Let's not forget that before the world existed, God scooped up and breathed into a handful of dirt and made Adam. He knew what would happen in the hearts of his children. God coming to earth to die for our sins was not an adjustment in the script that God had to make because we threw him a curveball and decided to rebel. If you were about to to conceive a child and given a peek forward in time and you could see that that child would rebel against you, shake his fist in your face, bring pain and suffering in the lives of themselves and everyone around them, ending up in prison on death row. Would you choose to conceive that child? God did. He did knowing what it would cost him. Knowing the rejection, the unfaithfulness, watching his children, the pain of watching his children he loves wreck their lives. In fact, that it would cost him the life of his son. Thank God the end of the story is not dependent on human faithfulness or virtue or power, or intelligence. After all, he refers to us as his sheep. Have you ever spent any time observing sheep? I have. My first degree was in animal science, and I can tell you that is not a compliment. I would rather be called a border collie. (laughs) Now, that's a smart animal. But if the shoe fits, 
The end of the story is not dependent on anything in us, but rather the fact that He is completely sovereign, completely faithful, and completely loving. The cross was already in place before the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, was planted in the Garden of Eden. Revelation was already established before Genesis began. There wasn't a chance that God would allow man to prevent his from fulfilling his promise to Abraham, but he had much more than the promised land in view as he unfolded his redemptive story across the Exodus journey. All the way through the desert of Sinai, wandering among the masses was the genetic line from which Jesus would come. All the way through the Exodus, time and again, we see Jesus saving the people. Jesus, the slain lamb and the blood over the door. Jesus, the tree that healed the bitter waters at Marah. Jesus, the bread from heaven that fed him every day. Jesus, the living water out of the rock that gave him a drink every day. And Jesus, the bronze serpent raised up on a pole to heal those who in their rebellion were bitten by deadly snakes. Throughout the Exodus, in fact, throughout the whole Old Testament, we see picture after picture of the plan of God from before creation unfolding in the people and the events of the Bible story. In their obedience and in their disobedience, in the defiance and wickedness of the, of the nations that surrounded them, despite the circumstances and even the laws of nature, God's sovereign plan to redeem his people and bring glory through Christ to himself, move forward. Now let me ask you a more personal question. Can you thwart the plans and the purposes of God? Can you? There's no doubt that our sin brings consequences and greatly affects our lives and the lives of those around us. But who is sovereign over your life? God? or your ability to be faithful to Him? Can bad parents, a bad spouse, a bad job, or no job, prevent God from accomplishing His loving purposes for His glory and for your good? In Romans 8, we see the words, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you came to the Lord, when I came to the Lord, it wasn't because we had some sort of virtue or we were better than the next guy. Romans 3 says there's none righteous, no, not one. There's not one who understands, not one who seeks after God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is not one who does what is good, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God was sovereign over our salvation. He rescues us and he makes us his own because of who he is, not because of who we are. It's because of what he did in the cross of Calvary, paying the price for our sins, not because of any work or virtue that we possess. And there is such great hope in that fact. Can you see why that is such good, hopeful, encouraging, uplifting news? We didn't earn our way to God, and it's not up to us to keep 
us in his family as his son or daughter. It's all about him. If you are in Christ, you can rest secure in that. Even though Paul says in Romans 7, nothing good dwells in us, we are so valued and cherished by God that he would move heaven and earth to die for us and make a way for us to have a close, intimate relationship with him. So if he is sovereign over our salvation, are we now sovereign over our sanctification? Is our staying in Christ and growing in the Lord dependent on our performance? I sure hope not. Because truth be known, as was laid out in 1 Corinthians 10, I see a lot of me in the Israelites. I often lust of the things of this world over what God has provided me. I serve the idols in my heart and set myself on the throne of my life, the place where God alone should occupy. I expect the people and events of my life to bow down at the altar of making much of me and making me happy and comfortable. I presume upon the patient love of God when I sin in full knowledge of what I'm doing. I grumble when things don't go the way that I ordain they should be in my life. And like Israel in the promised land, I can settle for incomplete obedience and even tolerate some sin in my life for the benefits I perceive it may offer. You know, rather than see sin for what it is, keep some sin on a short leash so it doesn't get out of control for my comfort or pleasure or entertainment or affirmation. The God who is sovereign over our salvation is sovereign over our sanctification as well. Paul asked the Galatians, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now finishing by the flesh? And he asked the Philippians, I'm sure of this, or he tells the Philippians, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. So if we're paying attention to the story of God's people in the Exodus and the story of our own lives, for those of us who've come to Christ, the mystery emerges. On the one hand, it's clear that despite the fact that we sincerely want to follow God, we continue to struggle with sin and our own selfish motivations that tear at the fabric of our relationships with others and our pursuit of God. Yet on the other hand, we know that God's purposes will come to pass. Deep down, we're convinced God is sovereign and Jesus is better than anything that this world can offer. We know that our selfish pursuits are an empty lie. We can see the foolishness of Israel's spiritual dementia as each new fear, like a windshield wiper, wiped from their minds the long line of monuments of God's faithful provision and rescue. Yet how like them we are when we're faced with the Red Seas and the enemy armies and the waterless deserts of our own lives. When children rebel against us and against the Lord, and nothing we can do seems to reach their heart. When a husband or wife responds to our love with unfaithfulness or neglect or abuse. When our financial livelihood is lost, when a job we've had for 15 years is like that, lost. When a close family member or friend passes away, leaving us in the searing pain of aloneness. When a fire or flood takes our home and all the memories stored there, when fear or depression or anxiety 
crushes in, pushing hope and faith and trust out of sight. When our own battle with those besetting sins seem to be more than we can bear. We know that someday God will fully complete the work He began in us, that our sanctification will be complete and we'll be set free from the struggle with sin to spend eternity with Christ, seeing clearly and fully experiencing the joy and blessing of our relationship with our Lord and our Creator. So why didn't God just do all that when He saved us? What is with this journey between the blood over the doorpost and entering into the promised land? of his rest. What's God up to as we walk through what we call this already, but not yet? God's not bringing us to a physical place called Canaan, but rather to a condition of the heart where we see just how much we need Christ and just how complete his work was done on the cross. Like Israel, he is showing us our hearts, humbling our hearts, growing our realization of the fact that this story we live in is truly all about Jesus. And please hear this, that we can fully trust in and rest in and lean on him in everything. In Deuteronomy 8.16, it says, He fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers had not known, in order to humble and test you, so that in the end he might cause you to prosper. God is loosening stiff necks, softening hard hearts, and causing us to look for our own, from our own selfish purposes or the things outside us that threaten us to see deeper and deeper into the unfathomable love of a gracious God who knows that our good is found in Him alone. In Hebrews 3 and 4, The writer talks about God's people in the Exodus and the rest that God promises and still offers in Christ. Hebrews 4 says, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find help or find grace to help in time of need. No matter where you are in your relationship with God this morning, no matter what you're walking through, if you turn to the throne of grace, you find two things. The mercy of a God who knew before you and I ever existed how rebellious we could be. Romans 5 says, but God proves his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Mercy in the, in the face of repeated failures. If God tells us to forgive each other 70 times 7, how many times do you think he'll forgive you if you turn to him? And secondly, we find grace that saves us and sanctifies us and causes us to even want to come to him and enables us to do what's contrary to our fallen nature, to turn in obedience to him. By now we should clearly see through the story of Israel and an honest look of our own lives that it's not up to us. It's not in us 
to perfectly obey, love, and follow God. But we have a great high priest, Jesus, who did and who does, and who offers in his grace perfect justification, redemption, and salvation from the penalty of sin. Theologians would say that he imputes his righteousness to us. We give him our sin, and he gives us the righteousness of Christ. I know this is hard to imagine and almost impossible to hope for, but that's the God we serve. By the way, if someone wants to say that God is not fair, this is a good place to do so. It is so not fair that God would totally declare us righteous when we have done nothing to deserve that. But in fact, in our rebellion, necessitated the death of his son. But he does. There's also a grace given to live out our new life in Christ. By his gracious indwelling spirit through faith, day by day, he convicts us of sin. He transforms our hearts. He renews our minds. And he causes us to follow, love, and obey him. He does this. God didn't stop caring about sin when Christ came. He still desires righteousness from his people. Christ said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And because he came, Romans tells us that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans also says, now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. Despite the fact that we've been given a new life in Christ, we still deal with the sin nature that plagues us. But don't fall into the prideful thinking that Jesus died to save you, but now it's up to you to just try harder and stop sinning. In his grace, It is His grace and through His Spirit that indwells us that God works to transform us little by little into the image of Christ. Grace, the power of God, changes us. Not our grit or gumption or striving or determinations or strategies. God told Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Grace changes our hearts and minds. It transforms the way we parent our children, the way we selflessly love our spouse, the way we interact with our coworkers and neighbors and employers. Life becomes more about us and more about Jesus, and as a result, more about others. So what about your life this morning? If you have never turned to God for salvation, the salvation he offers in the death of Christ and the new life he offers in the resurrected Christ. Today is the day of salvation. I'll be here at the altar afterwards and be happy to pray for you or visit with you about the new life in Christ. For those of you who belong to Christ, how is your journey with Christ going this morning? Just as God didn't cause Israel to be able to drive out the inhabitants of the land all at once, our battle with sin isn't won in a day. But we have his promise that the grace, the same grace that accomplished our salvation is available for our sanctification. He drives out the enemy 
not our power or our creative strategy. As we believe in him and move to Christ, he goes before us. It really is his story. It really is all about Jesus. Let's take our eyes off ourselves, our failures, our seemingly insurmountable circumstances that each of us may live in one day to another, and also around, off of the people around us, and let's fix our eyes on Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We pray with me. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.